This is episode number 25 with Randall Duk Kim and Annie Okiogrosso. Coming up. Okay, I'm Asian, but so what? Those stories belong to me as much as to any other person living on the earth. They were part of my inheritance. I mean, I, I'd go running around the house、uh, with a pillow stuffed up my back and my face contorted with scotch tape as Quasimodo. I mean, <laughs> I mean. But why aren't they doing Medea? That's our story. Why aren't they doing the Trojan women? That's our story. The woman's story is in the Greeks. This text is giving us clue about how it should be rendered. How it should be spoken, but be not too tame neither. But let your own discretion be your tutor. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action. I feel if you have a dream and you love these plays, don't let anybody tell you it can't happen. If you're looking for what it takes to be an actor long term over the course of your life. Then you've come to the right place, and you're going to really enjoy today's episode. Do you have some really audacious goals, or maybe even a few crazy ideas? Guess what? You're not alone, and in fact, the world needs you to go after those and to not give up. That's exactly where our guests were. Despite working regularly and finding success, they didn't see the kind of projects they wanted to do. So they created a place where it could happen, and through years of dedicated and hard work, it became hugely successful. But it wasn't all roses. They ultimately walked away from it and created a whole new chapter of their careers. We cover the highs and lows and lots more of this journey. Hey there, my name is Nathan Agin, and this is the Working Actors Journey, bringing you in-depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. We continue with season three, and if you're just joining us, there are over twenty episodes with fantastic actors you'll want to check out. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey that the road may be long and challenging, and that it is ultimately rewarding. Think of these guests like your personal acting mentors. You may not know it yet, but one of them could change your life. We have a new free guide to download. It's called Ten Ways to Stop Worrying and Start Working. Discover the mindset of working actors. Inside this online guide are ten specific ways you can stop worrying and start working when it comes to being an actor. Hear thoughts, ideas, and advice from those who have been acting forty plus years, taken from excerpts from past episodes. These guests do not know everything, nor is everything easy for them. They just have been around long enough to have figured out a few things, and they are sharing this with you. Get your copy of the guide now at workingactorsjourney.com/signup, and there's also a link in the episode description and on the show notes. Today on the show is a special one. It's a double bill. For the first time, we have two guests. Randall Duk Kim and his lifelong professional partner and wife Annie Okiogrosso, one of the great teams of the American theater. 
They have worked together their entire professional lives and are dedicated to the classics, and in particular, to the works of William Shakespeare. Actually, given the Shakespeare nerd that I am, and especially since I've started this podcast and learned more about the previous generation of actors, I was really stunned that I hadn't come across them before. To me, it would be like just learning about our past guests Armin Shimmerman or Dakin Matthews, two giants in the Shakespeare acting and teaching world. It just goes to show you how many amazing and wonderful lifelong actors are out there. If this is your first time discovering Randall and Annie, you are in for a treat. Now, what's wonderful about how this connection came about is that our guest, Harry Groner, casually mentioned to me that he remembered seeing Randall as Richard III at ACT in San Francisco, and how amazed he was by that performance. So, I just found Randall's website, sent an email, and they said yes. And what's great is now you'll get to hear what was going on for Randall with that show and the rest of his career all the successes and challenges of this great actor, with Annie working right alongside him. Everyone struggles. Everyone has victories. And that never changes. As we hit the milestone of 25 episodes, I want to share a few quick thoughts looking back. I'm releasing this episode just after the Oscars, and those were really the only actors I knew growing up, the people on TV and in movies. I feel very fortunate that has changed. I'm proud of these conversations, and it has been such a blast doing this. Okay, the scheduling, following up with guests, and the editing have been, at times, a pain in the ass, but listening back to these conversations and getting this content out there has been so rewarding. I have learned so much from everyone, and I continue to hear their voices over and over in my head, in a good way, of all the things that can help me in life and in my career. I really do wish I had heard some of these things 20 years ago. It might have really helped. The guests here are the kind of actors you want to emulate. They have made a lifelong career in this profession, and that is not easy. They do exceptional work and have the respect of their peers and of the industry. So whether or not you ever see them on that Oscar stage, these actors are all winners. So in today's episode, Randall, Annie, and I cover not seeing race as any kind of barrier in theater, moving to New York and submitting to every Shakespeare festival, why Annie initially despised Randall over his casting in a play, the ideas and misconceptions behind classical and method acting, starting their own theater to work on Shakespeare's first folio, how Randall, a lifelong classical actor, ended up in The Matrix, and so much more. Plus, we get another mini Shakespeare masterclass. Randall and Annie dive into Hamlet's advice to the players and share so many wonderful tips and tools. As I've said before, one of the reasons I love these chats is because of our link to the past. We've heard it dozens of times before, and in this case, with Randall and Annie, their mentors included Morris Karnofsky and Phoebe Brand, founders of the group theater in the 1930s, which is so cool. You'll hear how Randall was inspired by seeing Morris on stage and the collaboration and friendship all four of them had. 
Now, if you're enjoying these episodes, I want to let you know you can also become a premium member of the show, and there are a number of different perks, including bonus episodes, exclusive opportunities, and more. Members can hear additional conversations with past guests Robert Pine, Don Didwick, Richard Reilly, and Tony winner Reed Burney. Head over to workingactorsjourney.com slash premium to find out more and become a member. A special shout-out to those at the co-star level or higher. Adam, Jeff, Robert, Ken, and Ralph. Thrilled that you all are members. So here's a bit more about Randall and Annie's journey. Randall has been acting professionally for 50-plus years, playing dozens of leading roles in everything from Shakespeare to Moliere to Chekhov to the Greeks, acting at major theaters all around the world, from Honolulu to Vermont to Singapore. If I start listing everything he's done, we'll be here all day. He has also amassed an impressive amount of notable film and TV credits over the last 25 years, including as The Keymaker in The Matrix, Master Uguay in the Kung Fu Panda franchise, and as The Doctor in the John Wick films. He has received an Off-Broadway Obie Award for Sustained Excellence of Performance. Annie has worked as a director, dramaturg, acting coach, and actress. She was co-artistic director of the American Players Theater and received national attention for her body of work there. At the American Players Theater, she directed 16 Shakespearean plays, along with works by Moliere, Ibsen, Plautus, and Chekhov. She also performed the roles of The Nurse in Romeo and Juliet, Gertrude in Hamlet, Natalia in The Proposal, Madame Arkadna in The Seagull, Jocasta in Oedipus Rex, and Anna Petrovna in Ivanov. She has also taught at the Stellar Adler Conservatory of Acting and the New York Shakespeare Festival. The theater they co-founded, along with their partner Charles Bright, was the American Players Theater in Spring Green, Wisconsin. And, get ready for this list, it was the only professional, outdoor, classical, rotating repertory theater company in America at that time. Under their leadership, American Players Theater received a Tony Award nomination for Outstanding Regional Theater. I am so honored that Randall and Annie wanted to be part of this. The three of us had a number of chats on the phone leading up to this conversation. We all just loved talking theater, acting, and Shakespeare, and it was clear we are all cut from a very similar cloth in terms of our interest and passion. They have been so open, generous, and kind with their time, and I know you'll grow fond of them too. Just fantastic people. And of course, this is our longest episode yet. There are two journeys to cover, and it's worth it. While they are two individuals, they've really had one shared vision and drive for so many years, which makes this episode unique and special. I've not had two guests before because there is so much to cover, and yet it felt right in this case. Be sure to stick around to the end to hear what's ahead for them and the quotes they live by. So here we go with episode number 25. Please enjoy my chat with Randall Duke Kim and Annie Okiogrosso. Are 
are you guys more summer people or winter people? Do you love bundling up or do you love just being out in the sun? Well, I, do, I, I think spring and fall. Oh, okay. But the brief, brief as those are, yeah, I think those are the most enjoyable. Yeah, I like it all. We live in an apartment now. We used to live in a house, and so winter wasn't so much fun when you had to shovel. But um, but now that we have the convenience of a wonderful apartment, we really, you know, we can go out and walk around in the spring and the summer and the fall, but um, we don't mind being home in the winter and reading and you yeah. know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, well, cool. Um well, speaking of weather, actually, Randy, I know your beginnings were in Hawaii, so I thought that would be a good place to start. Um, and, you know, of course, as I start to do research and, you know, you put the timeline together and, and years and all things like that, you know, you were born during the war, World War II. And so I was curious, you know, what life was like, you know, as a young kid, you know, were your parents um, Americans? Had they emigrated or, you know, what, what, were, what, were, what was going on at that point? They were both uh, born and raised in Hawaii. It's okay. my grandparents that uh, came from the old country. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Honolulu at the time of uh the war was still a small town. Mm. You know, it, it, the influx of tourists hadn't arrived yet via plane. And so it was a pretty small, a small little town. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, the, the theater scene in Honolulu when I was growing up was quite vibrant. You know, you had the military bases there. You had professors and teachers who would fly to the mainland to uh, to see theater. So our community theater, the college, the university theater, was quite a vibrant place. And in fact, it was before I was 18 that I saw my first production, uh, the first productions of uh, Oedipus Rex and Hamlet. Hmm. So I had a taste of that at a pretty early age, and it was that taste uh, that led me to where I am now. And was that at a uh, university or professional theater? Where did you come across those productions? That was at the university, and it was run by uh, an Asian theater man. Uh, Earl Ernst was his name. But he had a program at the university, uh, of, uh, uh, a great play series, uh, so that every four years a student could see the greatest plays ever written, and they consisted of... Uh, let me see now. Oedipus Rex, uh, Lysistrata, mm-hmm. uh, Hamlet, King Lear, uh, Tartuffe, uh, Hedda Gabler, Cherry Orchard, and I think they, those are the plays. But I, I had the good, oh, Every Man was another one mm-hmm. that was done every four years. It, w- it was a cycle. Mm-hmm. And those plays would be repeated. So I was, I was really fortunate. I mean, those, the, the theater people at that time were very, uh, well aware of high standards. Uh, the community theater attempted to bring Broadway to the middle of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the university theater, of course, was, you know, quite conscious about world theater. Mm. And so up to that point, what, what had been your interests? I mean, and, and I mean, did you have any siblings or what was uh, the family dynamics in life like? 
Well, it was a typical middle class family. Uh, mm-hmm. I was brought up on radio. Television hadn't come, sure. come about yet. That uh, was to be later, but I, I heard, in fact, my first plays on the radio. I heard uh, Importance of Being Earnest and Arsenic and Old Lace on mm. the radio. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and as a little kid, I sat there and just laughed my head off, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so the impact was enormous. That was it. And I saw my first live theater at the community theater when I was in the fifth grade. It was a production of Oklahoma. Hmm. I knew then that I wanted Mm -hmm. to do live theater. And, you know, the people that were putting on these plays, was there any kind of um, distance you felt like, you know, because obviously the story of Oklahoma takes place in the middle of the U.S. and farming country with a bunch of, you know, white people and all that kind of stuff. But did you did you notice that? Did you see, you know, and then all of the other classical plays, were they being... uh, you know, colorblind casting, I guess what we'd call now, um, or was it, did you see any divide between you and the people you saw on stage or was it all mixed? I think in Hawaii, if you're raised in Hawaii, racism is an absurdity. Mm. You know, my friends were of mixed marriages. Mm -hmm. I was just naive about what was, what went on in the rest of the world. Totally naive. Mm. So I went at it as though, okay, I'm Asian, but so what? Mm. You know, uh, those sure. stories belong to me as much as to any other person living on the earth. They, they were part of my inheritance. Right, right. So uh, I went at it uh, as though my race didn't matter. Mm. And seeing uh, Oedipus, of course, done with masks, you know. An open door. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, right. my race didn't matter. It wasn't a right. factor. That to be an actor, it, it didn't matter what I looked like because right. it could be altered. You could don a mask. You could mm-hmm. learn to do makeup, which I did, mm-hmm. you know, to in order to accommodate the story and the character I was playing. So I, I taught myself to do makeup. Mm. Well, and I, and I can see how that quality of not seeing your race as a barrier, how that nope. may have served you for, you know, the, the rest of your career that you saw yourself... Um, for lack of a better term, an equal, uh, you know, as, as any other actor. Yeah. And, and why wouldn't you be considered for certain roles? And why couldn't you do certain roles? That's right. I had to learn otherwise after I got <laughs> to the mainland. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> that, that's not, not everybody shared that. Sure. That viewpoint. But right. nonetheless, right. I, I thought to myself, if I was raised in the West, and mm-hmm. educated with Western values, that all these plays were my inheritance as a citizen mm. yeah. of the West. Okay, very cool. And, okay, so I know... Uh, <laughs> At any rate, I was groomed on the radio, saw my first uh, live theater when I was in the fifth grade, saw Oedipus and Hamlet before I was 18, and I knew I wanted to be a live theater actor doing specifically those kinds of plays, Oedipus and Hamlet. Mm. And so it was the it was the feeling inside of you watching those plays that you wanted to try to get inside or, or recreate that for others? It 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 was like a nuclear explosion in my imagination. Mm. I had to do it. There was there was no question about it. That was the kind of story 
I, I wish to be a part of, to enact, to, um, to learn to be an actor to do, I mean, to do that kind of story. Mm. All right. So staying in Hawaii, your first uh, experience as an actor was you got involved with the community theater production of Macbeth, correct? Yeah. Yeah. We had been studying it in high school and, oh my God. It was my debut. I mean, I, I <laughs> we'd studied it in high school, and I, the play just inflamed my imagination. And I, an announcement came out that the community theater was going to do a production of it, and the curiosity got the better of me. And I, you know, screwed whatever fears I had and set them aside and went to the audition and got cast. Uh, and then it struck me, I think, on the very first reading of the play, that, oh, my God, I'm in a room full of white people. <laughs> <laughs> but I stayed with it. Um, there were a couple of other Asians in it, but mm -hmm. uh, it was a terrific experience. And, you know, and, and I've so, been sold ever since. Yeah. And, and yeah. so I'm just curious, were, you, were your parents very into art? Did they think you were crazy for pursuing the Shakespeare thing, even at a young age, that you were so into it? You know, what, what were those conversations? Oh, my dad was a great movie fan. Mm -hmm. So we would go to the movies maybe once a week. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in fact, he was the one that introduced me to the film of Cyrano de Bergerac. Mm. And then when I was in the seventh grade, he took me to see the Japanese film Seven Samurai. Mm. So it was a wide range. He, he loved the film, you know, he, and would take me. So when it came time for me to make a decision, there wasn't any argument about it. They mm. just permitted me to, to go ahead. Oh, well, that's great that, that they were so yeah. supportive, uh, you know, of that. And, um, yeah. you know, one, one can only imagine that they, well, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they were more aware of the challenges you know, Asian Americans might have, uh, but they, they were still, uh, still very supportive of your pursuit, uh, of an artistic career rather than, you know, being a, you know, going more into business or something a doctor like that. or a lawyer. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, well, now, now you just play I, all of those characters, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, but I, I think whatever worries they had, they pretty much kept it to themselves. They, mm. I don't recall a conversation where they were expressed you know, grave concern about where I was going. Maybe they had seen me all along as a child growing up that that's what I was inclined to. Sure. I mean, I, I'd go running around the house uh, with a pillow stuffed up my back and my face contorted with scotch tape as Quasimodo. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, you have a little kid running around like that and you wonder, okay... <laughs> right. How, you know, we, let's hope he can make money at this. Uh, you know, what's he going to, what, what are his skills going to be? <laughs> really? But at any rate. <laughs> well, so, and then you started, uh, you went to college, you went to university in Hawaii, right? Is that where you started your training? Yes. Uh, I was actually a religion major. Oh, okay. And my, my, uh, minor was theater. Hmm. But I knew, I knew even then that, oh, no, no, it was the theater that, had me caught what what was the reason for starting with religion or or you know is that just another passion of yours i was um consumed with curiosity about how our species has dealt with some of the 
more important issues in existence. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the, the religion uh, was a much more impassioned field of study than, say, philosophy. Mm. And so I was raised a fundamentalist Baptist. Okay. <laughs> you wow. can throw that in the hopper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, raised as such, I got to know the Bible, uh, Bible stories pretty well. Mm-hmm. And they were, to me, there was all impassioned tales, you know, and so that when I did see Oedipus and Hamlet, it fit right into all of that. Hmm. Very Passionate tales about people doing wild and crazy things. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and, and then you decide, did you ultimately change your major to theater or did you just start taking more acting classes? When did you become more serious as a student of acting? Uh, even while I was made, uh, majoring, even while okay. I was taking my religion courses, I would take, uh, theater courses. Okay. So it went hand in hand. I, I would say they were equal and it slowly became more and more theater courses than it was religion courses. Right, right, right. And by the time I. And, and so when you graduated college, did you have a plan in terms of your career? You knew you wanted to work in Hawaii or, you know, go to the mainland or, you know, what, what was the idea at that point? I knew I had to go to the mainland. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and let me be honest, I didn't get my degree. Oh, okay. I left college before getting a degree, mainly oh. because I couldn't fulfill my language requirement. That oh, really? killed me. I tried doing German. I tried taking Greek. I tried taking French, but I didn't have the discipline of mind to to do language, hmm. which was just, you know, it was an obstacle. So I left the university without, without a degree and went on my way to do what I had to do. Well, it, it's, it's so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. It's so fascinating because you're obviously a student of language, uh, to yeah. some, to some degree and, or a very, you know, strong degree. Um, and, and yet there was this other, Obstacle, um, you know, in terms of the foreign language. I was too impatient. I didn't have the patience to sit down. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. Some people would probably feel they don't have patience for Shakespeare or, you know, the Greeks (laughs) or things like that. And you were like, no, 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 bring that on. I'll I'll handle that all day. (laughs) That's right. I I can have patience for all of that, but I can't have patience for grammar and vocabulary. Oh, interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Now, um, I know around this same time, uh, I saw in your career that you were doing episodes of Hawaii Five O, um, yes. and 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 I saw that you did uh, a few different parts. So I assume they kept bringing you back for different roles. And yeah, yeah. So how did you, how did you get involved with that, and and why uh, auditioned? Did, did, yeah, and when they needed a young juvenile delinquent, of <laughs> course, <laughs> they chose a local. Asian kid. Okay. Got it. Got it. And, and so was that something that, uh, was common among, you know, actors at that time, you know, friends of yours or, or around the same age group that, you know, you guys would all audition and some of you would get on and, and it was just a very kind of common thing at that time. I, I was pretty much a loner, so I didn't oh. know many people, you know, I just kind of did it, did it on my own to see what it was about. And I really disliked it. Really? What, what did you dislike In about fact, it? In te- fact, television and film, yeah, uh, I 
I think it was Hawaii Five O, and then I d- had a part in a film called The Hawaiians,、mm-hmm. which was like a second part of James Michener's Hawaii. Okay. And、uh, after having a taste of live theater with Macbeth, it it, it just it just didn't cut it for me.、Mm. So I decided at that point, no, it was live theater. It had to be live theater. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.、Uh, film and television w- were not satisfying to me. And and so I mean, even at that point, were you cognizant of? I understand there's money to be made in film and TV, but I'm going to carve out my way. Or was it a purely、yep. kind of idealistic? Or you know, what was the decision? Was it more? Yeah. So was it a business decision that you knew you were going to have to work harder to make it? Work in theater, sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and、okay. for yeah, for far less money. Yes, I, I remember when I finally got to New York and started working.、Uh, I think it was a, a casting director who said,、mm-hmm. "Listen, I I can't offer you art, but I can offer you a lot of money."、Mm-hmm. I turned it down.、Hmm. I I didn't want to play that game. Mm-hmm. I had、mm-hmm. to, in fact, when I got to New York, find、uh, submit myself for just about every Shakespeare festival that was going, that was、uh, performing during the summers. I swore that I would commit my summers to doing Shakespeare somewhere.、Mm. And so, you know, I sent pictures and resumes and tried to get auditions. And finally, the、uh, the Vermont Shakespeare Festival, the Burlington Shakespeare Festival. Hired me, and I was there for three summers. And and I mean, and yeah, and that's a that's an amazing、uh, opportunity to to get to do that. You know, every every、yeah. summer. Were you so when when you went to New York? What? How were you making ends meet? You know, in between of you know trying to find these these Shakespeare summers. I tell you, Nathan, it,、uh, the cost of living was lower, so you could、uh, mm. exist with a smaller salary. Mm. Unlike what's happening currently, sure. And we managed, we managed to, you know, to survive on little money. But、right. what I was gaining was a huge amount of experience doing repertory、mm-hmm. during the summers, three plays at a time,、um, wow. and a variety of of parts that would challenge me and challenge my imagination and demand make demands on whatever skills I needed. So it was invaluable. It was invaluable.、Mm. Then later, I got to work at the New York Shakespeare Festival. I did Pericles in Central Park, and、mm, then、wow. uh, Trinculo in the Tempest at Lincoln Center with the New York Shakespeare Festival.、Very、so、cool. it was, yeah, it was a freer time, I think, and I was I was blessed to have the opportunity opportunities that I did. Less、right. to have people that were more courageous in their、uh, in their casting.、Mm-hmm. Well, and and it sounds like I mean, even you know, you don't have to graduate to have student loan debt, but it sounds like that、That's、was、right. not something weighing you down、um, no. that a lot of students、uh, face today. Absolutely right, absolutely right, Nathan. And I I feel for the students now. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. It's I mean, it's it's and especially those who want to pursue art or or anything creative、yeah. or do something, you know, even if they want to travel or do an internship or something. That's right. 
you are faced with the reality of, well, I have to pay this debt. I have to that, make these payments. That's right. When I left the college, uh, I didn't owe anything. Yeah. So, but that was the time I lived in. And right. the time that Annie lived in, too. She right. didn't right. owe anything when she left. Well, and I just have one other question in Hawaii. I saw that you started a group called the Ensemble of Theatrical Artists. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like there's a story there, just based on your reaction. So I'm curious, what was the genesis of that group? That uh, was an attempt to establish a theater in Hawaii. We knew that uh, uh, we couldn't do the full cast classical plays. Mm-hmm. Because uh, as a young group, but we did decide to do modern classics. For example, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit, mm, uh, yeah. Samuel Beckett's Endgame. Later, we branched out a little and did a stage adaptation of Rashomon. Mm. And we had costumes made in Japan, and we had a wow. kabuki uh, uh, actor or dancer to coach us. And that was our largest production before we we took off, before we stopped producing. Okay. And and so what did you learn from, you know, the, the producing? Did you really, were you excited about producing? Did you, did you know you wanted to do more of this or, or you know, and, and, and did it end just because you wanted to go to New York and start your acting career, you know, focus more on your acting career then? Uh, it, uh, pretty much. I mean, yeah. we, uh, Chuck Bright and I, uh, got mixed up with some guys who were going to do uh, hair in Hawaii. Oh, wow. They had met the uh, producer, uh, and uh, they were going to do a production in Hawaii of hair. So we got mixed up with that, and before you know it, they took all the island kids. They couldn't find a theater in Hawaii, so they took us and shipped us to Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> They just dropped you in the desert. To get to yeah. the, <laughs> right, right. Remember having to go through the casino to get to my dressing room. Sure. But it was an experience. And I, at the time, I was uh, a hippie like anybody else and mm-hmm. was, you know, a protester in the anti-war marches and things like that. And mm. <laughs> And we thought that, I thought that, Hair made great statements about peace and about living as human, free human beings. Sure. So that's how I got my equity card. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah. And I'm not sure that was a huge, uh, huge feather in your cap in terms of, you know, then going to New York and, right. and auditioning. And that's so right. was it, was it around the time when you were auditioning for those festivals? Is that when Annie, is that when you guys, uh, you know, met and, and connected? Uh, pretty much. I, I, w- uh, I was a guest artist at her college, college Hunter College. Okay. Uh, they were doing Brendan Behan's The Hostage, and uh, I knew the director, and he asked me to be a guest artist uh, in that production, and that's where I met Annie, because she was in that show, too. And I was enraged, because I didn't <laughs> want outside. I thought all the students should perform the parts. Right. Of course, And they brought yeah. this outsider in. <laughs> Until one night, he knocked on my dressing room door, and he said, I think you're a wonderful actress, and... And then the rest is history. <laughs> I was willing to follow him anywhere. <laughs> well, yes, he, he certainly knew what to what to say. 
to the uh, to the enraged was. actress. Yeah, <laughs> but I knew also that that he was a splendid actor. I mean, mm, sure. As or, a young yeah. college student, you you find an actor who does this incredible transformation through makeup, has this beautiful voice, um, and is playing this old man when he's all of twenty six years old. So um, you know, for me, he was the epitome of act of of a fine actor. Mm. Um, you know, and, uh, but, but we didn't really get to know each other until he came back the next year and taught makeup at the college. Okay. Um, then we started talking. Mm-hmm. We were on the phone every night. Yeah, oh, wow. Theater. Talking about classical theater, really funny. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Randy, where did you learn this, uh, the, the makeup, uh, skill and art? I would take books out of the library. I oh, bought wow. my first makeup case, uh, a kit, uh, when I, in Hawaii, in Honolulu, when I was in the sixth grade. Hmm. Wow. So I knew even then that, and I would, you know, take books out of the library and pour over them and try to learn how to paint and my face and do things with my face. And, and so, you know, you were, you were coming up and growing up and, and in this, transition of acting to, you know to some regard you know there was the more of the method stuff and um i remember watching a clip of christopher Plummer talking and he said yeah back in new york in the 50s he said you know you had this uh clash of you know we would consider ourselves like the classical actors and then there were the street actors um you know that that they just had two different styles and so what i was curious about is that you know you're in this age when this new style is emerging and, and being popularized certainly in film and things like that. And, and yet you seem to be more attracted to this, you know, classical style. And, and, you know, of course, Olivier is another example of someone who really liked to use makeup and liked to use things. Um, and that was probably seen as the older way of doing things, but, but that, sure. but that seemed to really attract, uh, be attractive to you. Yeah. But I don't think it was the older way then. I think that was still. That was, uh, yeah. That's, what you yeah, that's a good I mean, point. if it that's was good. classical theater you wanted to do, right. that those were your models, and that's, that's who true. you wanted to emulate. You needed that skill mm-hmm. mm. to become part of that world of that story. You know. And and did you see? Did you see a, a place for this modern emerging acting style in your own work, or did it? Did it matter to you or, or were you content to continue, you know, doing, you know, I guess what we would call the classical style? I, I, I don't know how to answer that. Okay. I think he's hesitating because for him, there is no difference. I don't think that okay. he looked at it as classical, yeah, a, a classical see. style. To say, because Morris, you should talk about your inspiration, oh, Morris Karnofsky, yes. who's an American actor from the group theater, and that mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. the inspiration for a lot of his Shakespeare work. It was right after I graduated from high school. I was uh, visiting my uncle and aunt in San Diego, oh, okay, and happened to be walking through Balboa Park, stumbled sure. upon the Globe, and I was ecstatic. And they were doing three plays in rep. Uh, Merchant of Venice, Twelfth Night, and Richard III. And in the troupe was an actor named Morris Karnofsky, and he was doing Shylock. I had no idea who he was or where he came from. All I know is I saw the production, saw the performances, loved everyone, uh, every one of them, 
but his performance stood out. There was something I was not watching an actor. Mm-hmm. I was watching a character living, breathing, living out his destiny. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a trace yeah. of actor in his work. There wasn't a trace of performance in his work. He just was. And I was mesmerized and I said to myself, ah, that's the kind of actor I want to be. That's the kind of, of acting that I want to do. And we'll try to struggle to achieve. Mm. It was only years later that I found out who right. he was and how he was connected with the group theater. And, uh, also became very famous during the sixties for his, not only Shylock, but his King right. Lear. Yeah. Yeah. So. Morris, as far his acting held a light. For okay. Me. Okay. Uh, something to strive. Right, 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 right. A standard okay. of acting, you know, where you're not watching a performance, you're not being performed at, but you're watching a living three dimensional being. Right. Well, yeah. And, and, and I guess, I guess the only thing I was curious about, and it just may not, may not have factored into it is, uh, again, the, the obvious examples of Brando or James Dean with this more kind of, uh, we'll call it maybe mumbly, uh, uh, performance and, and it's, it's just more quote unquote naturalistic. Um, it just, uh, maybe what I'm talking about is that's just something totally different. Um, that. Well, there's a time to mumble and there's a time to shout. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's fair. <laughs> I mean, there are times in Shakespeare, perhaps you're, you play, you're playing a character that right. mumbles. <laughs> like one of the mechanicals, perhaps in *Midsummer right. Night's Dream*, but but there's a time to, I don't know, to take into your soul something so larger than yourself, right? You know, like a Lear, or even a right, Hamlet. right, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's just, I think it's just very interesting that that connection to, you know, the the generation before you. Doesn't we don't have to say like the past, just you know, you saw something from you know, the older generation that you wanted to continue yep. and you wanted to, to emulate and, and be like, yeah. um, and you know, that was kind of your guiding star. Yeah. Um, you know, if I could, if I could do, if I could be the kind of Shylock that Morris yeah. was, um, you know, that, that would be a, a successful journey. Um, all right, cool. <laughs> and, yeah, I, it's it, it, there's just so many ways we could take this. It's great. Um, but, you know, I want to say one thing, though, about the differentiation between the classical style mm-hmm. and the methody style, um, because I think one of the things that we have always uh, wanted to achieve uh, and to get across to our audiences was that classical theater isn't a style in and of itself. Yeah that these are mm. plays that take place in another time um, and that you yeah, need a right. standard speech to speak them and that they do have, you know, they're filled with uh, perhaps a magnificent use of language that some modern plays, uh, you know, don't have in them. But I, I think that we always wanted our audience, the reason we want an outdoor theater was we wanted our audiences to understand that it, it's not something that stands apart from them. Um, you know, the classical theater doesn't, it, it's not a genre where American actors have to emulate British actors. Mm-hmm. Um, we want right. an American style of acting to do 
these plays. And and what Randy saw in Morris, I think we, we both have striven our whole life to achieve, which is um, just inhabiting these characters with the best instrument possible right. to deliver the goods. Right. Right. And, and yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it even seems to kind of lead towards, you know, maybe this whole naturalistic uh, uh, moniker might be just a little misleading or, or a bit of a misnomer that, you know, you can have quote unquote natural acting in a Shakespeare play sure. or, you know, I, I mean, it also kind of unpacks like, well, what does that, what does natural mean? But, you know, is it, is it something that, evokes an emotion in you and if it is it doesn't matter if it's a film or a stage play or you know anything in between um that what you were just saying that you know if you're bringing your instrument as fully as you can and telling the story as truthfully as you can you you know that's that's the that's acting that's there's no style of it it's just that's what you're trying to do whatever whatever the story calls for or the specifics or the you know mechanics or the subtleties of the medium might dictate different things like if you're doing voiceover versus you know a a hamlet outside you know you might have different you might approach it differently in terms of technicality but you're still being truthful with the work that's right yeah okay great well, all right. So let's jump back to um, uh, uh, when you were a guest artist, and and uh, Annie had decided that she liked you, uh, and you guys were talking <laughs> that I could more tolerate him. Uh, in, in the makeup class. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. You could tolerate. You could tolerate him. Um, so once Annie, you you graduated college, and and did you did you guys by the time you graduated, Annie, did you know that you know you and you and Randy were together i mean like this was this was it i mean or where were you guys in your life path Uh, interestingly enough i have the same story that randy has and that i did not get a degree because i did not complete my language really oh geez okay you guys were meant to be together (laughs) and the interesting thing is the same is true of charles bright who was the third member of our team yes but um at the end um in my senior year um, Randy was looking, talked about having money as an actor. He was looking for a job. And I had a job at, um, a market research firm. And I, he called, mm-hmm. I called my, uh, the director of that play was my acting teacher. And so I'd called him. Randy picked up the phone and, um, I recognized his voice. And we hadn't talked since that other show was over. And he told me he was looking for work. I hired him immediately. And so he mm. came into my office, and that's really when we, you know, apart from the play and apart from Annie being a student and Randy being a guest artist, we really started to sure. share ideas about the theater and um, uh, and started to talk more and get together. And I think it was that that time, don't you, Randy, mm-hmm. that, that that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think from that time we knew that whatever was going to happen, we were going to go at this together. Yeah. Mm. And, and I know you guys, end, or, or I believe you ended up in D.C. at some point. Yep. And so uh, what, what was the transition from New York to D.C.? What led you down there? Well, th- th- there are a couple of things. Between New York and D.C., Randy was w- working in different regional theaters. So he had he was at the ACT. We went and did a production of Hamlet in Hawaii, um, and um, our friend Chuck Bright was the head of ticket sales 
in oh, okay. D.C. At the Kennedy Center. At the oh. Kennedy Center. And so when we got back from touring and doing all of this, this regional stuff, um, he decided, he, Chuck decided he was going to live in Washington and keep this job. And we announced to him, so were we. And so <laughs> we said, we're, we're coming to Washington too. And, um, then he hired me to work at the Kennedy Center while Randy continued to look for work around the country. And so that brought us wow. there. Okay. It was there while we were there that we got word from the Guthrie Theater that they wanted me to do Hamlet. And we, I wow. can write, that was a little celebration in the office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I got I got to ask, what, what what was it like to bring Hamlet back to Hawaii? Uh, <laughs> it must have been a wild ride, just you know, since that's where you started, and you know, you saw these classical plays as a kid, and now here you are playing Hamlet uh, in Hawaii. Yeah. Well, the, originally the director was going to cut it to 90 minutes because he thought the kids in Hawaii oh. were not going to sit still. And we managed to have him restore the bulk of a lot I of the play. I was a dramaturg. Right. But it was while we were doing that production that a friend of mine had a copy of a first folio. Mm, okay. And we, we had no idea of what that was about. But we began paging through the Hamlet text and we began noticing things like a word being capitalized in the middle of a sentence, the odd punctuation from your modern editions. Right. And we began asking questions, and it was there that we said, you know, this text is giving us clue about how it should be rendered, mm-hmm. how it should be spoken. Sure. I mean, yeah. if you just hit some of those capitalized words, give it a little bit of emphasis, immediately the sense of the idea you know, is brought into high relief. Uh, and other things we began to experiment with as far as the punctuation goes, what to do with a semicolon or a colon, and right. uh, take note of the question marks, take uh, note of why, why, why is there no period when there's so many periods in the modern text? Why does the period right. not appear until the end of a very long speech? Right, sure. You know, what's that all about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was interesting to be in Hawaii because we found that there was um, an understanding that uh, these Hawaiian kids who we were working with yeah, had yeah. for the play because they had a monarchy. Mm, so right. the notion of kings and, and queens was very relevant to them. Yeah. So they weren't looking for a very CEO cool. or anything no, like no. They got it right away. What they didn't right. have was, of course, the standard speech, um, but they had this incredible mm-hmm. spirit and energy. And I remember one night uh, somebody missed an entrance and one of the uh, servants that was in the scene when the kid who missed his entrance came in, he yelled out, Oh, thou tardy tart, where hast thou been? And <laughs> I was going to fall off my chair. But even that had a kind of charm in, in their involvement with the thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, I, and I think for Randy to come back to Hawaii, where they had seen him as Mark Twain and in other other things, they hadn't really seen him as a lead in a in a Shakespearean play. Right. Um, it was very rewarding. Your your parents your parents were able to see this. No, they they were on the mainland. They, were in they, they had moved to the mainland, oh, okay. so they didn't get to see it. But some relatives did. 
Okay. So when was when was the what was the first thing that your parents saw you do in terms of the stage I work? I think it was in uh, New York while I was at the American Place. Mm-hmm. Not yeah? Shakespeare. No, it was not Frank Ch- Chin. Yeah, uh, it was an early uh, okay a Frank Chin piece at the American Place Theater. Got it. And that's what they saw. But after that, they would come to visit our theater in Spring Green sure. all the time. Oh, cool. Very cool. And then, oh, that's great. Yeah. And then my dad and I would stay up late talking about the plays. Oh, and, cool. Yeah. That's great. That's great that they were so, you know, invested and involved, oh, yeah. uh, you know, in, 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 in your work. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, getting the call, the celebratory call <laughs> uh, from the Guthrie. And did that just come from regional theater auditions or a connection or, you know, out of the blue? Well, I th- I think um, Alvin Epstein was the artistic director right. at that time. And you had worked with, with him, him at Yale. That's right. That's right. Um, and so that was the, but the beginning of that story is they wanted Randy for Polonius. Oh, really? Um, and I forgot who it was that was supposed to do Hamlet. Yeah. Um, but that person dropped out. And so Chuck, uh, in negotiating, said to um, whoever was doing the hiring at that time, you know, uh, would you ever consider Randy for Hamlet? And it, and that word got around, and that was the second call. So that's how he got wow. it. Right. And because I was playing another old man that season, too. That's I right. was playing Bishop Nicholas in right. Gibson's Pretenders. Hmm. And so Chuck thought, no, he shouldn't do two old men in that. Same season. Wow. So he suggested, why didn't he do Hamlet? Well, uh, boy, what what an amazing thing to have uh, another advocate, uh, you know, not only yourself advocating for yourself, but, uh, you know, uh, your friend Chuck right, uh, right. advocating on your behalf. Right. It's pretty much what our relationship has been. Yeah. And we had that with him for 40 years because mm-hmm. he passed away. Wow. Uh, but but mm-hmm. that was how we operated. It's the only reason we were able to pull off that theater in Spring Green is yeah. that we were there for each other. Right. And each one of us had a different um, area, pursuit, of area of uh, right. responsibility. Right. And I guess it would be your second time tackling Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it was not too long after the first, it sounds yeah. like. Um, what, what was your experience now going through the play a second time and, and here you are doing it at, you know, the professional theater, the Guthrie? You know, at the first time you're out with a Shakespearean play, it's only broad strokes. Mm-hmm. That's all you can do. No subtlety, okay. no nuance, you know, just broad strokes, understanding the general, uh, line of action, the plot. Um, the next time you do it, uh, there's a little more nuance, a little more understanding, a deeper view of it. When we finally got to do it at our own theater, I, I thought we did very mm-hmm. well with uh, getting to the much more subtle and nuanced and performance the, of the it. The first experience gave us the folio. That's when yeah, we yeah. came upon the folio. Sure. We also found that in that abbreviated version in Hawaii, after the production was done, we were asked to tour the schools. So we went to the schools who came to see the play, and one kid raised his hand. He said, I really liked your production, but why did you cut out Fortinbras? And we realized that that, uh, Shaw, you know, uh, was right when he said the reason that you shouldn't cut a Shakespearean play is not because it doesn't deserve it, but you really risk cutting the one thing an audience member may have come to see you handle. And that sort of became the lesson for (laughs) us about 
about cutting the plays. So by time we got to the Guthrie, now, now we're, you know, uh, maybe naive zealots, but here we are, <laughs> no cutting and folio all the way. And, mm. and the man who directed it, it was his first Shakespearean play. He was a stage manager at the Guthrie, uh, and, and he was asked to tackle Hamlet. Didn't know the play. Wow. Um, and in fact, at one point, he, he asked me to, uh, the line was, uh, to sleep, to dream no more. And he said, well, what does that mean? What, right in the middle of rehearsal, what does that mean? What does, I said, Stephen, to sleep, to dream no more. And he said, oh, oh, okay. So we <laughs> knew that we were in the hands of someone who may know the stage, but didn't necessarily know the play. And that created a couple of problems for Randy. Do you want to talk about when he pulled you aside? Well, at one point he pulled Randy aside and he said, um, listen, I need you to support me um, because I'm uh, most of these actors can't do what I want and I need you to support any decision I make. Well, he ended up cutting so much of their role that um, mm. here's Hamlet now sounding uh, like a blabbermouth. Like a blabbermouth. Right. Wow. So it was diff- yeah. it was a difficult process, but the Minneapolis audiences were wonderful, and they came when they came to see the play. I would go out into the audience because I, at this stage of our life together, I was invited to sit in on all rehearsals and all uh, performances of any play Brandy was in. Wow. And so I, what I did was to go out into the audience every night to listen to what people were saying. And it was all about the play. It wasn't about, the, mm. you know, costumes or anything. It was about, they were actually talking about the, that moment in the play and, and not criticized, but really saying, what do you think Hamlet, you know, is right or wrong or, uh, but that kind of thing was happening. So we became enthralled with the audiences in the Midwest. Um, and that was the next level of our experience is what do we want audiences to, how do we want them to receive a play? Do we want mm. applause and standing ovation or do we want them to leave, you know, being better for having been there? Right, right. And it sounds like, you know, it was, it, it, in hindsight, it was the natural progression for you guys to form um, your theater. Yep. But I would say a lot of people, you know, may have similar experiences where they're frustrated by the process or feel constrained. Um, but you guys were crazy enough to go, no, we're going to we're going to start a theater. Yep. And, uh, and and it, did it just seem like this was did it seem like at the time this was the only natural step we could take? Yep. Yeah, Nathan, we, it, that was, it was a culmination <laughs> of ten years of working on it. Right, but um, yeah, okay. Uh, we uh, Annie began sitting in on my rehearsals and performances uh, at the ACT in San Francisco okay, with Richard the wow. Third. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and that play had been cut, and I would come home at night and I'd say, you know, I can't make this transition from point, you know, from this point to the next. And she would go mm-hmm. over the text and she said, well, of course not. That, that, there was a chunk cut out there. So the emotional, there was no, an emotional transition was removed. So I couldn't make the transition. Mm, right, right. So from that point on, Annie would watch and then we would converse after performance, examine what happened that evening. You know, what was, what did I 
do on the stage? What did the audience uh, get from the stage? Uh, were we uh, uh, bringing light to the text or were we just murking it up? Um, and it was that point that that kind of working relationship happened. After the, um, uh, the Hamlet in Min- uh, Minneapolis, we had to found our own theater in order to do the plays uncut to see how they worked mm-hmm. uncut and mm-hmm. in a period suitable to the vision that the playwright would have, whether it's ancient Rome for Julius Caesar or uh, Renaissance Italy for the Merchant of Venice, you know, the, just to provide a visual that accommodates the story. I, I think when you spend more time complaining about you gotta the, the production you're in and criticizing it, it's time to do your own uh, because that's not mm. going to get you anywhere. Right. You know, and we felt that right, right. we had reached, we were becoming pretty miserable in the theater yeah. with all of the different obstacles um, that we felt were there. And so we felt, look, shut up or put up, you know, um, because yeah. it's time. And and Chuck had been doing a lot of research on where that might be. Yeah. Um, and Randy and I had been looking at different training programs and, and not just American training programs. We looked at the No Theater and how those actors trained and the Kabuki Theater and the Commedia dell'arte. We wanted to see what process do we need to put our actors through to achieve the result that that we were looking for, which was to tell these stories to all members of the audience, not not just the educated or the those that come to the theater all the time, but our promise to our audiences would be that you don't have to do any work at all. You come, and we'll do the work, and we promise you you'll understand everything that's happening on that stage um, and everything that's being said. Mm. And, and did you guys feel like you had the audience? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a bold idea. Uh, and even at the time, it, it seems like it would have been bold to go out in the middle of you know the country and put on these uncut Shakespeare plays. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, you always run into this of, you know, the, the marriage of art and commerce of, mm-hmm. well, if we're going to do this, we need people to actually show up and, you know, give us money. Mm-hmm. Um, and was there any fear that there wasn't going to be an audience or did you just, did you have the sense that no people, you know, if we build it, people will come? Yes. That's it. The That's second it. one was, we were so, <laughs> there was no turn. We felt that what we were offering, once people got a, a you know, look at it, that, that audiences would turn sure. from all over the world. Once they got a taste of these stories that we were uh, scheduled to tell, mm-hmm. um, that they mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. return. That they would come back. Absolutely, no doubt. Yeah, right. yeah. And by the time we left the theater, sixty-four thousand people were coming every summer to visit us. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. So, and but I, here, but here's how fate also played into it. We looked at forty-nine different sites. We end up in Spring Green, Wisconsin, a population of twelve hundred people. We had a realtor look at properties for us. She called and she said, "There's a woman who owns a piece of property in Spring Green." It's 75 acres. She's always wanted to see a production of Midsummer Night's Dream on the hill on this property. Wow. So the woman invited us to come. We could stay in this converted barn and 
play on the land, take a look at it, see how we liked it. Um, and we took her up on the offer and we walked up to this hill and we went up with flashlights because we didn't want to be dazzled by any kind of visual uh, at all. So we went up at night, flashlights. Randy uh, would stand in different sections and speak. And then we would test the acoustics. Mm. And they were perfect. Wow. We found a spot where the acoustics could be, your voice would travel all the way up to the hill in which direction you'd be facing. And that's where we decided to um, settle down, put the theater. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, that, that that is pretty amazing that having that kind of experience and it just it, it all coming together, uh, you know, so so perfectly. And and yeah, as you as you mentioned, uh, you know, the theater was a huge success uh, and and you did have those throngs of audiences. Yeah. Um, Not from the top, though, Nathan. Yeah. The first season we we chose to do Titus Andronicus. <laughs> Shakespeare's first tragedy, mm-hmm. yep. uh, partnering with Midsummer Night's Dream to bless okay. the, sure. the project. So that first season, there were nights with Titus Andronicus that there were more people on stage than there <laughs> were in the house. <laughs> you know, but word got out. And the following right. season, we brought those plays back and added uh, Comedy of Errors. Comedy of Errors. Okay. And uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona. That's like two gents. Mm-hmm. We d- decided that we would start pretty much with Shakespeare's early plays Mm -hmm. so that we would learn his progression and the audience would learn with us how this playwright, you know, grew. Yes. Yeah. So so we had a training program um, that started off with apprentices, but the equity actors were envious and they said, is there any way we could come and train and so we made a deal with equity and they gave us a special dispensation, allowed us to bring equity actors in. I think it was, um, two weeks earlier or a month earlier and a train as long as we didn't work on the plays that we were performing. But with Shakespeare, you know, you can learn a lot about Hamlet by looking at Macbeth oh, and King Lear. So we, uh, right. we did that with, with our training. Um, and Randy had a 20 year schedule. And the training went from 7 o'clock in the morning, began with uh, Tai Chi, mm-hmm. and we worked through the day, took a lunch break, a dinner, and then and then it ended with watching a, a film, a film some of sort. some sort, and it ended about 11 o'clock mm-hmm. at night. Wow. Those were the days, oh, boy. You know, <laughs> I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a part of me as an actor, it's like, you know, you... Yeah, you'd love to get away and be able to do that kind of stuff. It's a rare I'll tell you one other part yeah. of that that wonderful story is that when we got there, we we had we cast our plays, um, we had the directors, everybody was hired, and we were going to do the costumes from scratch, you know, uh, in the town. And we thought we had a loan from the bank for fifty thousand dollars to begin. We only Randy and Chuck and I had four thousand dollars. That was it. And um, at any rate, wow. the bank loan fell through on the day that all the actors arrived. Oh, geez. So now we're sitting there with no money at all. And it turns out that we had spent um, the winter before the summer getting to know the town. I became a member of the homemakers. Randy would do his one-man show in a kind of bar where uh, members of the J.C., 
were there. And Chuck would go and meet mm-hmm. the farmers. We, we began to find out who these people were who had populated the town. And we found 12 people who put up $2,500 loans for us to start the theater. Wow. Absolutely strangers who we had met along the way from the, the winter who believed that we could pull off what we promised. And we wow, got, we got the seed money to start the theater. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to touch on just a couple experiences because I, I know we could spend the whole time yeah, I know. talking about every season there. Um, but was that when Randy, was that the first and maybe, and I know you've played King Lear multiple times, but was that the first time you played King Lear? Was yep. that uh, American Players Theater? Yep. yep. So what, I mean, you know, the, and I do want to talk a little bit about a lot of the roles you did, but that one in particular what was it like to play Lear at such a young, you know, a, a young age, you know, c- uh, uh, comparatively to, you know, what he calls himself? Um, and what did you, well, there's a few questions. I mean, you know, not only what you took away from it, but did you ever feel like an imposter? Like, who, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so young playing this older character. And, and what was your approach to keep you grounded um, during that of like, well, no, I can, you know, with, with masks or with makeup, yep. I can play this guy. There's no reason I can't do, you know, can't play him. So I just curious about your experience during well, that. Well, listen, I, I've been playing old men since the age of 18. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, that's a lot enough. of rehearsal time to, to, well, to learn to play a, a man in, of advanced years. Um, the right. other thing is we had invited Morris Karnofsky. And Phoebe, his wife Phoebe Brand, to come and direct mm, yeah. the production. Oh, okay. So my my task during it was to learn from Morris as much as I could about his Lear. Mm, okay. You know, even to the point of trying to imitate line readings that he would give. Mm, okay. There's a thing in Asian theater where younger actors learn by Im- imitating. Sure. The mature actors. Oh, okay. You know, you learn something and it may be by rote to start until it begins to seep in and you begin to understand the emotional content just by the sheer imitation of it. You know, mm-hmm. if there is any content or how it connects to you. So that was my task for, for that particular production and, uh, mm. learning, learning from Morris and how he saw right. this character. But already I had some facility in doing age. Right. So that part wasn't frightening (laughs) to me. It's really wonderful that, you know, you were an actor that didn't see race and didn't see age. So (laughs) the world, the world was your oyster. You you could do anything. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely right. Uh, very cool. And crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, and that must have been extraordinary, uh, to work with Morris and and his wife Phoebe, especially given your, uh, you know, experience as a young kid, seeing him on the stage of the Old yep. Globe in San Diego, that, you know, it here's someone circle. that, yeah, yeah, someone that full changed circle. your life uh, in some degree. Yep. And now you're working as a colleague, uh, as a peer with yep. him. Yep. Um, very amazing. Very, very amazing. And yep. well, and, and so, I mean, just to, you know, again, very quickly kind of look at that time of your life. I mean, you, you, you played so many major roles, uh, you know, on a professional level. And that is what so many actors would love to do. And so I'm curious, you know, you, you, you know, and just, uh, I, 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 it, 
it does almost an injustice to even list any because I can't list all of them. But Richard the Third and Hamlet and Lear and Shylock and Falstaff and Romeo and Petruchio and and those are just a sample of the the Shakespearean ones. Um, but but doing all of those major roles, and I know you had done some before you guys started your theater, but you know. That is something, like I said, that's something that so many actors wish they could do or would love to do is, you know, play a lot of major roles. And having done that, what do you feel you walked away with or what did doing all that teach you? You know, because that that seems like such a, that there are so few people, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm making too much of an assumption, but it seems like there are few people that have such a, such a great experience like that. And so I'm curious what you took away from that experience. I took away how important repertory is for an actor to do mm. that. It's the, the best way to hone one's skills and one's understanding, stretch one's imagination, stretch one's uh, capacities. And I miss that. I miss that in the theater. Mm. To me, the theater, the Broadway theater is what I call industrial theater. Sure. Yeah. The same play eight times a week you're working in a factory. Right, right. Whereas repertory is not a factory. You have to be on your toes every single time you're out there. Right. I mean, you may uh, re-meet a play only once a week, you know? Right, right. And that's how Shakespeare's company pretty much worked. They had to put out an enormous amount of material and plays. So those actors had to be on their toes night after night or day after day. Um. No, I miss that, and I I feel sadly for the modern actor not having the places to go to have that experience, because it could only make them better actors. And and it seems like, you know, the only one I can think of is the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and, yeah. and of course they don't do even as extreme of a schedule as you just mentioned, yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there are very, very few places that do you know, repertory, I mean, you know, maybe they'll do two shows at yeah. once, but certainly not three or four yeah. um, in rotating rep over, you know, three or four months. Um, but, yeah, just having to jump back and forth, um, you know, and, and like you said, stay on your toes. Yeah. And it, it's a challenge, but it's a delight. It's a joy because what you're off, mm-hmm. what repertory offers to the public is a feast, you know, an audience member could go visit, uh, can visit you for an entire week and see a different play every night. That's a feast. Right. Yeah. And what a joy yeah. for the audience. What a joy for the company that does such a thing. An achievement, you know, to feel good about a challenge. And I suspect that there is just a feeling that that wouldn't work anymore, but I don't know if there's the data to support that because, you know, people are always, you know, people like it's the same. People are still interested in stories and plays and all that. Sure. I mean, I, 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 of course it, you just need, I mean, of course what it demands is the right group of actors yeah. that can do that, yeah. that are, you know, and, and, if, and because we don't have those training grounds anymore, well then, you know, how, how do you find a group of actors that can do ro- running, you know, rotating repertory theater? Yeah. Nathan, I don't know. I asked Peter Zeisler, uh, who headed the uh, TCG mm-hmm. uh, sure. for a time there. And I asked him, Peter, is it possible for America to have a classical repertory theater? And he said, no. And mainly because mm-hmm. all of us are distracted. Right. We're running from one audition to another. Yeah. We're trying to get this job or that job. Sure. 
So there's no focus. There's, uh, you know, every, it's every man for himself pretty much uh, for most of the time. And what you need is a company that is well trained as a ballet company, say, right. You know, right. capable of doing a repertory of different work. Um, right. But who would, I don't know, devote themselves, give themselves over to one another and to the training and to a repertory. Um, Except that I want to just add one thing, and that is, look, we were crazy. If you think for a minute that the time was easy for us to do what we did, yeah. people thought, NEA laughed at us. They said, unless you do productions with uh, the kids in farming overalls and chewing on straw, no one's going to come to see your theater. Um, and we would not take no for an answer. We had $4,000 in our pocket. That's it. Um, and so I think, I, I guess if there are young people listening, I feel if you have a dream and you love these plays, don't let anybody tell you it can't happen. And, and you, sure. you know, you, it will break your back and it'll tear your heart out at times. But I will tell you that if you have that dream, Please, please don't give up on it because the theater needs you. We need that to happen. Those people who are so starry-eyed and, and naive that that they won't take no uh, for an answer. We need that because the rest of us are sitting around saying, couldn't happen today. No, 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 couldn't happen today. Right. But how many, right, right. I wonder how many companies. Look, Moliere had to leave Paris in order to start his company. Shakespeare didn't have a party. Mm. Those people were working other jobs. Um, so right. I, I think times are always tough. I think the important thing, though, is the belief in getting something done. That's all it takes. Mm. Once you have that and you gather the right people around you, I, I think Go it could it. happen yeah. again. Well, the yes. group theater. The group yeah, theater. Sure, That's sure. right. And the time is we're crying right. out for it right now. We need a theater. The yeah. theater is all we have left, Nathan. To talk to our souls, to talk to our hearts. And it's the one thing that, with all my respect for what digital, the digital world can accomplish, they can, mm -hmm. you cannot take the nature of live theater and put it on a computer. You need, Morris used to call it rimbombare, the particles of, of what the actors give off and what the audience takes in. And that's what live theater is about. Um, you know, so I think I, I want to encourage young people to, to definitely go after it. Otherwise, I'm not sure what we have left. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully the, uh, the next, uh, crazy naive group is listening and they'll, they'll take your lead and they'll take up your call. Um, well, well, just to kind of wrap up the time with, uh, uh, APT, um, you know, I know you guys left it about after about ten years, and and the theater is you know continued on and and done well. Um, but I imagine you know leaving the theater and something that you would put so much energy and blood and sweat and tears into, uh, literally, I'm sure, and figuratively. How did you move? past that and move through that because I, I, I know it wasn't a, a decision that you wanted to leave the theater, but you just reached the point that you felt you needed to. And, and, you know, because I think there are a lot of people that have projects and things that they work on and they put a lot of energy into, and then it becomes something that is, you know, either not theirs anymore in some regards or unsustainable in the current iteration. And, and, 
you know, letting that go. So how, how, what was that chapter of your life like? I, I think, uh, the day we were asked to step off the board of directors was the day that the board of directors had no one to represent it artistically, mm-hmm. no one to represent the artistic vision of the founders. Um, and that's mm-hmm. the day that we lost the baby lost the child mm. uh, because then it became uh, the playground of the business interests on the board. Right. Um, at some point uh, we tried to continue f- for years after that, but it could never, the, the original mission that we had to create uh, a company of actors devoted to the classical repertoire, training, uh, performing, producing these plays, studying these plays, uh, that couldn't be realized. And it was when we realized that it was not possible any longer that we, we had to leave. Yeah. The great sadness, of course, is that th- there's, there's no place in the country where there's a professional classical repertory company for the public to count on, you know, that gives them a a feast week Mm -hmm. after week, month after month, year after year, a feast of some of the world's greatest plays written by some of the world's greatest playwrights and a company who have trained to do a repertory as wide ranging as Sophocles and Ibsen and, Shakespeare and Chekhov and Moliere, you know, it doesn't exist and we need it at a time that we're living in. We need to have visions like that to remind us of the larger Mm -hmm. context in which we're living our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Annie, was there anything else you wanted to add to that? Well, I, I'm, I was listening. I agree with Randy about getting off the board, but mm-hmm. I, Morris had said when they came out, the mm-hmm. and he came mm-hmm. to direct us, he said he thought the lifespan of any theater was about 10 years. Yeah. Um, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure that it, I, I, in some ways it was a, a positive thing to happen. Yeah. Um, I don't agree with the way they do the plays there now because they are updated. And I think I've made clear how I feel about a lot of that, particularly because that theater wasn't founded with that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I, but I have to say that our lives since I think we've listened, we had private time with, with Phoebe Brand for Mm. several years before she passed away. And there was more learning for us. Randy got to do some wonderful, um, roles in film actually i mean this he'll talk to you about that i'm sure but (laughs) but, you know there's so many i got to teach in in new york Mm -hmm. and we got to travel the world a little bit more than we would have being in spring green so uh, perhaps it was just the right thing to happen at the right time my only regret is if i could start tomorrow i would again because I love mm. these plays, and I think the, our approach to them has been um, neglected. I mean, the way the way we look at them, uncut right. in the period in which they were written. Um, I would love to have our playground back to do mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and that's we lack the playground now. Yeah. So we can teach, and we can do little excerpted performances here and there. 
But having done Enemy of the People at Centenary uh, last year, I have to say it made me hungry to do a full play again, Mm -hmm. um, the way we know how to do them. Sure. So that's my regret in all of it, if there's any. But I think it was the right time. I I think we would have been miserable if he stayed. Yeah, you're probably right. And wasn't it, um, was it Edwin Booth that says, uh, that has the quote about, uh, many people dream. Yes, all, of, uh, right. All actors people. dream of having their own theater, but when they wake up, they know better. <laughs> yeah, he tried. <laughs> and so I think everybody who's a- attempted a theater has, has certainly understood things that they never knew going in. Right. Certainly, anyone that has has run their own theater now, there's a uh, you, you recognize the scars on the others, uh, you know, <laughs> who have who have run their own theater, and you go, yes, you you know you know the battle, yeah, right, you know, yeah. right, you were there, yeah. um, but but well, as you as you kind of reference, it it did open your life up yep. considerably, and, and of course, you know, you, you guys had both done so much work, you know, during the 10 years you were there. So, you know, on a professional level, it sounded like you certainly got a lot out of that. You know, you oh, used, you, you know, all that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so now it was opening up to, you know, uh, Annie, as you were saying, to, to teaching and coaching. And, and it, I think also you were finally, Randy, able to, you know, start accepting film work or at least auditioning or considering it because you had more time in your schedule. Is that true? That's right. And I finally had said, okay, now that, uh, theater, Mm -hmm. that experiment is at an end. Yep. Now all these years I've said no to movies and television, but what's that medium about? What did I say no to? Right. Right. So it gave me the opportunity to say, okay, find out. And so, so was it, was it kind of challenging that idea that you had developed as a kid that you didn't, you know, from Hawaii Five O, you didn't want to do that, that now that you had to come to it afresh and go, well. It completely yeah. changed. Yeah. I wasn't so arrogant about <laughs> looking down at that medium. Sure. You know, that it has its own artistry. No, the performance is not in my hands as it is in live theater, but. The right. artistry involved in creating a piece of film or in creating a, a television moment uh, is different. And what I do as an actor is to merely contribute whatever it is I can to the event, to, mm-hmm. to the, mm-hmm. the product. And that's challenging and, and intriguing. Well, to jump into a little bit of the, the, the on-screen work you've done... How did a lifelong classical actor end up in the Matrix? <laughs> well, I <got laughs> by fortuitous uh, circumstance, I would say. Okay, I, I had seen the first Matrix. In fact, we saw it, and we were sure. just blown away by the premise of it. Oh, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, when Mally Finn uh, gave me a call <laughs> and director, told me yep. to come out to L.A. and I did, flew out and auditioned for the brothers and got cast as uh, the key maker. And I, when I went into film, I said, there are three genres that I would love to do before anything. One is a historical piece, another is a science fiction piece, and another is an animated piece. And I've done three of those. Wow. The historical piece was Anna and the King. Mm-hmm. The science fiction piece was Matrix, and of course Kung Fu Panda. Right. So, 
So, and that was that was a conversation you had with your agents or your ca- the casting directors. Mostly the casting directors, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Chuck and Chuck was Randy's manager, and yeah, so, so he would... Chuck knew exactly oh, okay. what, how Randy had set his sights on <laughs> certain things, right? And, you know, and that was another thing that I think is important is that you have to be able to say no. And, um, mm-hmm. and that's what Rand, Randy knew what he was willing to do, but he also said no to a lot of the same film okay. and yeah. even theater yeah. projects. Um, and so mm-hmm. Chuck, every time Chuck would say no, they'd come back with a bigger offer. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that turned out to be nice, you know. Right, um, of course. But, but I, I think you have to know, know your worth and know what you want to do. And that's how he set right. his sights on, on the films he ended up doing. Really, how you want to spend your time and what you want to give your energy to. Sure, sure. You know, has got to be, has got to be worthwhile for you. Has got to be of value to you. Absolutely. And how are you nurturing these relationships with casting directors, you know, doing theater? Cause I, I imagine running the theater was a year round job, even That's if right. you were only performing mm-hmm. in the summer. So, you know, when you came, you know, out of that experience, how did, you know, how, how did you have these relationships with casting folks? I think, um, well, his work was known. Uh, Randy, as an actor in New York, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. his work was known, and Got so okay. people had lured him on several occasions. That, like when he was talking about Wally Hiller, actually, is one of the agents right, right, who right. who said, "All I can do is offer you money," yeah. um, uh, you know. And so they would always, if the role seemed right to them, they would call him. He didn't really pursue any of the that work. The, the okay. agent would call Chuck and say, "I have this. Do you think?" Can we, you know, ask Randy if he'd be interested? And so that's how that proceeded. Um, but he was, I, I would say that his work at, at the New York Shakespeare Festival, Lincoln Center, mm-hmm. all of that. And then sure. our theater had its own, we were up for a Tony nomination. So enough people around the country yeah. knew of, and Randy was certainly the, the featured member of our company. And um, right. so I, I think his reputation preceded him. And so people from time to time would, to see if he might be interested. And then once he was, that opened the door to other a- casting agents, you know, to come in with, with more offers. I think, uh, yeah, when we got back to New York, I had auditioned for uh, the revival of The King and I, mm-hmm. yeah. playing the King's Prime Minister. And it was from there that Anne and the King film, got I got called to audition for that, right? That's right. Right. And, you know, you were, you were doing all this theater, you know, you started doing more theater, you know, after, you know, in the nineties. And, and I, I read that, you know, the production that you did with, um, Cymbeline yeah. and at the Delacorte again, yeah. you know, here you are yeah. 25 years later, yeah. um, coming back and, and getting a lot of acclaim for that role. And, you know, I was actually just kind of thinking like both that character, is it, uh, Bilarius? Yeah. Is that, so Bilarius and both, uh, Master Ugwe, uh, you know, they're about 10 years apart, but I'm, I'm wondering, I'm like, okay, so here's, here's Randy coming back to the Delacorte and he's, you know, just run his own theater for 10 years and he's done all these major parts. Like, and I'm like, is he kind of like Bellarius? Is, is he like a sage? I mean, you know, but I, and I'm, and I'm wondering like, do, like, how did you see your role in the theater world after doing so much work? Um, you know, were you, you know, yeah. How did, how did you see how you fit into this now, 25 years later? That's a, 
That's some question, Nathan. I don't. I don't. I, don't. I try to come up with good ones every now and then. I can't always promise. Uh... I don't know. I, I'm an actor. I just want to yeah. do interesting work. I want to be asked to do interesting work. But I think it's yeah. also true that you understood that ever since Miss Saigon and that whole controversy, oh, that, that um, the kinds of roles that Randy was offered were no longer the King Lears or, uh, you know, mm. the, the major roles, knowing that makeup would be um, out of the question. Um, because that's just right. something that Asian American actors wouldn't do anymore. Um, he would, I have to say. But but sure, it became sure. such a controversial thing that I don't think most theater companies would. It almost became politically incorrect for yeah, me to use right. makeup. So the roles he was offered to tended to be, um, you know, the the kinds of puck role, you know, the nondescript, no longer the leading, the leading man. Right. That okay. he, I, I think that the world has lost out on perhaps the best Lear they would have ever seen, had they followed through with Randy's Lear. Um, but mm-hmm. but that was not to be. And I, I don't think it would be today, to tell you the truth. I don't think anybody has the courage because we, I, th- I think we have talked about this before. I think you have to decide what artistry is. And you have to decide to what degree politics and economics are going to interfere with that. Are you going to f- you know, you have an, what do you do? You have this artist who has this amazing ability to transform himself, um, and to do great roles. Do you take away that and relegate him to nothing? Because I had once asked an Asian American actor, you know, in The King and I, has anything changed since Miss Saigon? He said, yeah, here's what's changed. We're only asked to do Asian roles. So I'm not sure what great accomplishment was made. Um, and I, you know, so I, at any rate, if, I think that's what happened back to your question with Randy was the kinds of roles that were being offered was were no longer the, the great, great roles. Yeah. But he's he was curious to do the Bellariuses and to do right, right, some of those right. other roles. I, I had even uh, drawn a sketch of the makeup I wanted to use, but Andre Serban nixed it. Right. You know, uh, mm. so what I've had to do is to learn to use my own face as my mask. Sure. Which is weird, but there you have it. <laughs> and and Uwe became his mask. Uh, Animation yeah. became his mask. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, and, and, and I was also curious on a certain level, you know, the parallels between Bellarius or Uguay in terms of the, the giving back or the offering of advice yeah. or what they've learned and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Randy, your career, even at that point, um, that you had done so much. And, and I think I even read that, you know, there were actors, uh, at that time, you know, you actors in the company that wanted to learn Shakespeare from yeah. you or, you know, take classes and things like that. So you were, you know, you were this person that certainly had a reputation and, and, yeah. you know, did great work. Uh, and so, I mean, do you see yourself as the teacher or are you always the student? I, I'm both. I'm both. Yeah. I'm a perpetual student. You know, there's a, a, mm. a, a Zayami, one of the founders of the No Theater. Uh, one of his pieces of advice to a younger actor is to, when he said, never lose the heart of a beginner. Oh, yeah. And I think that's very true. To stay, stay open like a little child learning, learning new things, seeing the world in different ways. 
seeing the world for what it is is quite a right. I'm both. Okay, yeah. that's great. Yeah, no, and, and I love the open heart. Um, yeah, that that that, that comment. Well, okay, so it was shortly after that that you won the Obie Award for Sustained Excellence in Theater, which um, seems like almost kind of an understatement at that point, given how much you had done. And was that any kind of validation you had internally been seeking, or, or how did you view the award, or you know, what did that mean to you? It came as a surprise. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But you were out of town, so you yeah, didn't. Get I, to, yeah, I didn't get to receive it personally, but no. It's, and we thought that I think part of the speech that he wrote said something like, "Here I have spent my whole life doing theater, um, and I'm here. I am receiving an award for that accomplishment, and I'm out of town doing a film." <laughs> so it, it, right. you know, the irony of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so. Yeah. After you did the uh, the Matrix, uh, I know you did a number of other action films, uh, you know, Dragon mm. Ball Evolution and mm. Ninja Assassin and, and John Wick. So were you, again, you know, very certain that you wanted to do more action films or, or were you pursuing them or were they pursuing you? How did that come about? I, I do. Uh, I choose my work if it's exciting. And in the case of John Wick, it was with friends who had worked on The Matrix. Mm, okay. You know, Keanu. And, and the sure. director. Yeah. Yeah, Chad. Chad Stasowski. Uh, and the stuntmen. Yeah. Well, and it, and it just, and it, you know, watching some of the behind the scenes things, it, it just looks like you're having so much fun with all the stunts yeah. and, and I mean, especially sure. on The Matrix, which is, you know, so extreme, but, yeah, um, yeah. but that, you know, no. you get to be a kid again. Yep. Absolutely. Every day going to work, feeling like a little kid. What's today's adventure going to be? You know, right. well, what part of the motorcycle chase am I going to be a part of? What can I do? Yep. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, I want to try to do as much of my own stunt work as possible. Yeah. Mm. And they let oh, cool. me for a good yep. chunk of it. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> and when Master Uwe came along, was that just a, you know, one picture project? I mean, did you do that by yourself in a studio or did you know that there was more built into this? That Did you know it was going to become this, you know, huge franchise? I had no idea. Uh, the director, when I first met him, said, he told me, I want to create something mm -hmm. classic. And he did. And I thought that, uh, no, there couldn't be a sequel because it's the first one was so complete in and of itself. Right. But they did make sequels. <laughs> and, you know, it took a year before they cast him. Oh, really? Yeah, they contacted him the year before, and they said they were looking all over the world for the right voice and the right character, you know, the actor who could embody Uguay. And then they came, but we mm -hmm. thought it was over. We thought, well, that didn't happen. Sure. And then a year later, we got the phone call saying that they wanted him to do it. Wow. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've heard a lot of times, um, voiceover work, especially animated work is like that, that you just kind of do it and it goes, you know, off and has its own life. And as people figure out what they're doing and money and time and all this kind of stuff, and, and then it may wind its way back into your life, um, you know, many, many years. And then, of course, was it a situation where he, where Randy was working with the other actors or was it all record, recorded? Uh, separately from everyone else. All separately, Nathan. 
Wow. Which is, wow. which is a credit to the editor, the director. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, they created the piece. All I did was to lend my voice to this character. That's all I did. Right. And uh, when we did the voice work, uh, I tried to give them as many different options as I could as far as, you know, the reading of different lines and. Sure. Uh, so that they would have a choice when they finally put the mm-hmm. thing together. Mm-hmm. Wow. But uh, I thought I was done after the first one, after Uguay's beautiful death scene, you know, being sure. absorbed into the universe, you know. Right. Uh, but then when we got the call to the third segment, I we were startled and right. wondered, okay, how <laughs> how's this going to work out? <laughs> Well, that now you'll be like uh, Hamlet's father. Right. Yeah. There's always the supernatural. <laughs> right. can't, can't rule that out. Right. Well, I, I, I wanted to ask a, a, a question about the two of you, because around the same time, I think maybe it was a little bit after the Kung Fu Panda, but I noticed that you guys finally got married yeah um after being together for about 40 years <laughs> right yeah and that's that's an unusually long Friendship. uh engagement period or, or courtship <laughs> right and so i was curious uh i was curious why why the decision to wait on marriage for that amount of time and that or why finally to decide to get married well we never felt the need for marriage because over those 40 mm-hmm. years, as I said, you know, Chuck was part of our lives as well. And sure. everything was about theater um, and particularly APG. Then we tried to start another theater in Hawaii when we left APG. Oh. Um, and so it was constant theater. And then Chuck became ill um, and with cancer. And at the time, I didn't have insurance. And so we decided that we, we should to. get married so that I could have insurance and that if anything ever happened to us, we would be able to be in the room together or make decisions. And, mm-hmm. um, sure, yeah. you know, I think mortality started to take on a reality that we had never faced before. But we also mm-hmm. felt that every day we had to renew our vows. We didn't want a piece of paper. We didn't want um, an outsider saying, sanctioning our relationship. And so we felt that if there was a kind of test every single day to see if it would last. Um, and that felt good, that it didn't need anything more than that. And everyone sort of accepted it. I mean, our, our families, our, mm-hmm. huh, our friends, everyone just felt it was Annie, Randy, and Chuck. Um, and only our hairdresser, I remember our hairdresser said that many of our friends would come in to him and want to know who was sleeping with who. <laughs> and <laughs> we said, we'll never tell. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I have to say that, that it was not uh, very much about sleeping together. It was about theater. That's right. what, that was the right, drive right. that, that we had. And, um, and so finally we decided, okay, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's get married and if make the, sure it's. Mm. If the three of us could have gotten married, we would have. That's how close <laughs> right. we were. Sure. That's, that's, uh. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone knew it. I mean, see, that's yeah. the thing. You know, my mother uh, comes from a very traditional background. Randy's mom and, and Chuck, they all came from very traditional backgrounds, but, um, somehow they just felt that this was the right group of people to be together and and admired that we didn't argue and that we didn't have the domestic 
issues that that our fam our siblings had. Um, sure. You, you know, so uh, mm-hmm. I think that I think that's ultimately why we why we did it, and we like it. It's Love nice, it. right? You bet. <laughs> Amen to that. No. Well, um, speak, speaking of, uh, of, of love, um, I, I, I noticed and I watched the presentation and performance you guys did in Wisconsin, um, you know, a few years back, and you called it uh, a 40-year love affair with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, well, why was that not a marriage with Shakespeare? Because it seems like you've, you've been quite committed to him for uh, quite a long time, so I was just I was just curious. It was just that you called it a love affair and not not a marriage with Shakespeare. Ah, good mm. point. Good point. Yeah, actually, I don't think we even came up with that. <laughs> that we we had the pleasure of his company, and then Frank oh added had that a love affair. Yeah, uh, but it, it's it's interesting that you should say it because it has very much been a, a marriage. I mean, somebody once asked us if we walked around. They said they heard a rumor that we walk around our apartment in Elizabethan garb. And we were like, what? <laughs> and it's not over, Nathan. No. This affair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that, that might be a good segue into, um, taking a look at, uh, Hamlet's speech to the players. I know you said, sure. Randy, that, you know, that was something, or, you know, both of you guys could, I'm sure, talk a little bit about. Um, so, so yeah, what, um, what would you like to dive into in that, uh, well, in Hamlet, it's a speech that actors should know and take to heart. mm -hmm. Uh, the circumstances Hamlet is trying to discover whether or not his uncle has killed his father and these players have come to the castle and he's written uh, a extra scene that they're to play and he advises them. And now he's under pressure because this play he wants to uh, uncover his uncle's guilt. Mm -hmm. He tells the players, speak the speech. I pray you as I pronounced it to you trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it as many of your players do, I as leave the town crier had spoke my lines nor do not saw the air too much, your hand thus, but use all gently. For in the very torrent, tempest, and as I may say, the whirlwind of passion, you must acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. Oh, it offends me to the soul to see a robustious, periwig-pated fellow tear a passion to tatters, to very rags, to split the ears of the groundlings, who for the most part are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. I could have such a fellow whipped for ordoing termagant. It out Herod's Herod. Pray you avoid it. Uh, be not too tame, neither, but let your own discretion be your tutor. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action, with this special observance that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold as to her the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time his form and pressure. Now, this overdone, or come tardy off, Though it make the unskillful laugh, cannot but make the judicious grieve. 
The censure of the which one must in your allowance or weigh a whole theatre of others. Oh, there be players that I have seen play, and heard others praise, and that highly, not to speak it profanely, that neither having the accent of Christian, or the gait of Christian, pagan, nor man, have so strutted and bellowed, that I have thought some of nature's journeymen had made men, and not made them well, they imitated humanity so abominably. So, there's some <laughs> advice for actors, you know. <laughs> ah, that's marvelous. But mostly, let your own discretion be your tutor. Important for an actor to find his own discretion and to be taught by it. Also, suiting the action to the word and the word to the action. And so, how would you? I mean, I don't even know if I want to try to define. It. How would you define discretion? You know, let your own discretion be your tutor. What 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 does that mean to you? Judgment, your judgment of okay. things. You know, you're weighing out of things, whether something is beautiful or ugly, whether something is too slow or too fast, whether something is too soft or too loud, all of that. And, and it's trusting, trusting your own instinct yeah. on that as yeah. well. Is that, that's a part of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and don't do it for the approval of others. Don't right. try to, mm -hmm. you know, that's why I think the idea of the clown coming in, it, it's not, don't do it to make an audience laugh or to, you know, elicit right. a response. Use your discretion in understanding what that moment is calling for. Because it is in right. your hands. You know, Mars Karnofsky, um, he directed us in Ivanov, and he gave me very harsh criticism at one point, and I was devastated. And then uh, I went out and did what he asked me to do, and I couldn't do it. And, and he said to me, well, that was much better. And I said, no, it wasn't. You and I both know that. And he pulled me aside, and he said, Anna, did I ever tell you that when you're on stage, it doesn't matter what I think? He said, you're, it, don't do it for me. He said, go out and you do it and you're in charge. And so after this harsh criticism, I think his point was, that's my job to critique you later. But your job is to act it and use your own discretion in what's necessary on stage. Mm. And I, it was the wow. best advice that he could give me because so many of us play for approval, for uh, you know, it comes to Shakespeare, uh, we, we feel like we have to be walking dictionaries, um, you know, that everybody has to understand every word. And so we're not, we're not doing justice to the role in the moment, um, you know, and its requirements. So I think that, that right, may be what right. it, it, mm -hmm. it means. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I, Shakespeare teaches you everything. I mean, you really right. are in good hands. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think it's so emblematic of, you know, what is it? A, a four, four phrase line that we just reference that we can talk about it for, you know, five minutes. You know, we can talk about what does it mean? You know, just that, that that's, that, that was his genius is being able to pack so much into, yeah. um, so few words as we, as we talked about earlier. Um, I was curious and, you know, you did reference them a little bit, you know, earlier when you said you first encountered the first folio, but, are there anything, because, I mean, you know, Randy, you did deliver that just masterfully. Um, and I, but I'm wondering, are there any specific lessons for actors and directors in the first folio when it comes to this speech or that, you know, you can think of or, or how else might you encourage an actor to 
uh, you know, start to work on this speech. I would, I would uh, recommend to actors to take a good look at the text that, as it's printed, because it's as close to a score as we can possibly have. There are mm. too many suggestions in how it's laid out, the punctuation, how the punctuation works in it, uh, capitalized uh, words in the middle of a sentence asking you to pay a little more attention to that word, um, making sense. Um, but to take a look at it, because printing was only a little over a 100 years old by the time the folio was printed, right? Mm. So wow. you had... Still, it's tied, uh, the text is still tied to speech, to human speech. So if right. you look at it, okay. yeah, you'll see that it's, it's as close to a score as an actor can possibly have with regards to this playwright. It's a, it's a process because you also, if you see that capital, if, with the folio, if you see that capital in the middle of a, a line, you know, you ask yourself, what would make somebody stress something like that? You know, what, what would make you call attention to that? I, I always use the example if there's a, a glass of water on a table and it tips over and I see that it's, it's about to fall on to someone's foot, I would say, um, Nathan, your shoe. And so that mm. capital S means that's where the energy is going to land. Um, and so you start to play, you have to play technically with the folio by hitting the caps. If you have a, a there's a wonderful uh, book called Shakespeare's First Texts by Neil Freeman, where he has done a computer study of the, of the folios and he's found consistency in the punctuation. And one of the things that, um, that he talks about is the use of, of the colon and the idea of, of going on with, with something, you know, this energy that, uh, the colon, uh, is demanding of you or the semicolon is asking you to downshift. Mm -hmm. So you, so the semicolon is a, is a kind of personal, uh, punctuation that, that makes me, I'm a little bit ashamed. I'm, you know, so I come down a little bit on it. And so all those little mm. tips in there on each piece of punctuation becomes a be stage direction and can be very, very helpful. And if you put your imagination to it, um, wonderful things happen, but you don't, if you really don't need a teacher. If you just play, we didn't have one. No, we played with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I think that that's how I would suggest people look at the folio. Yeah. You know, mm. know what you're saying though. You you have to know words. We we were working with two students, and it was the Romeo and Juliet scene, and she said, uh, "Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo?" And um, it wasn't sounding right. And I said, "To say it again." Sure. She did it several. She said, "I said, what are you saying?" And she said, "Where are you, Romeo?" And I said, no, right, right. no, wherefore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, I assumed she would know what that meant. Um, mm. So it's so important for people to understand, to look up those words, get your hands on a dictionary, and find out what you're saying. Um, and don't rely on the footnotes. You know, there are footnotes right. at the bottom of the Ardens and the different wonderful texts that exist. But if the note isn't there, we think, oh, I should know that. I must just be stupid. No. And we pass on. Find out, look under every possible stone to find out what you're saying. 
Right. And and for anyone who didn't know wherefore, that just means why. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, in that scene, why are you Romeo? Why, you know, why, yeah. you know which, of course, changes the whole sure. meaning of not where is Romeo, but why is That's he? Right. Why right. is he this Romeo? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Um, very cool. There's just so much great stuff to talk about. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, I'm a fellow Shakespeare nerd. So Yo, you know, it's I wonderful. Just, you know, talking about it, every every little word and every punctuation yeah. and capital letter. And what does this mean? Yeah. What can we do here? Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's just so fun. I mean, that that is one of the things that is very exciting to me about the text. And if I, you know, the, the times I've had an opportunity to work with actors on text is that it is so full of possibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much you can do. Um, you know, there are, there are things you want to keep in mind and there are tools that you can use. Um, but there is, you know, there's not the, well, this is how Hamlet is performed and this is how you have to say the word. You know, it's, it's not a math equation. It doesn't, you know, you don't put in and get out the same thing every time. It's, you know, but, um, but yeah, it's just so alive with possibility. I think too, Nathan, once you, uh, put these words into your mouth and run them through your mind and then through your heart, you can never do ordinary speech again, nor do you want to. You have, <laughs> yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. do this kind of speech again and again. You have to let your tongue right. and your lips roll around with these. Um, we were uh, watching a little bit of uh, Carnival Row, a series that's on uh, mm-hmm. Netflix. No, no, Prime. Amazon. Amazon, right. Um, okay. And uh, the playwriting is so... Um, one can only wish that the writers had a greater sense of poetry. Mm. Yeah, you know the use yeah. of uh, uh, the F word and the mm-hmm. all kinds of right. just to be contemporary right. about it. But they could have done it with a lot more finesse, a lot more yeah. poetry, and they would have had a richer, a richer world for it. Well, and I mean, you know, from my experience, you know, once you work on language that demands so much of you, it's not to say that um, contemporary plays, you know, there aren't demands and there are challenges, but it's sure. just it's just a different set. And, That's you know, right. when you when you realize I have to do all of the, the normal acting thing and figure out the text and, and make right. that make sense, I actually – Part of, part of the work I do is, is, um, audiobook narration and I'm always working on it and, and a student of it. But I was working on something from the text Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And, mm-hmm. uh, one of my teachers said that kind of before 1900, people wrote how they thought. And so yeah. it was much more formal language. Yeah. Um, and so when even in a text like uh, Think and Grow Rich, and he was saying it's almost Shavian, it almost feels like Shaw. <laughs> and it really demands, if you're going to narrate this, it really demands you to, you know, because you have sentences that go on and on and on that sure. you have to figure out, okay, how's my, you know, what's my sense of structure here? And what's the meaning? And what's the point? And what's the, yeah. all the different things I can do, not just technically to make it sound interesting, but to really get the point across. Yeah. But it demands, it, it calls on those tools of you as an actor and then that to me is is the most exciting i'm like yes i can i can narrate something that's written very contemporarily and very casually and that's sure. you know i can bring my work to that but um you know to to work on a text that says no i'm gonna i'm gonna make you work for this and yeah. you know that that that's fun to me 
Yeah, yeah. I think it's one one of the problems also when people do updated productions is that you have this language that belongs to a different time mm-hmm. and you put modern dress on it. Sure. And I That's think hard. that that makes the audience more distant from it or feeling more uncomfortable than if they saw it in its period. There's more of an acceptance. Oh, I see. That's the language that matches that world. Um, you know, and right. I, and I, right. I think that, uh, I think we're deceived in thinking that if we just updated, uh, the clothing and kept the language that everything would be fine. It just doesn't work sure. that way. It's a different time. The language yeah. works differently. We, not everything is fast. I mean, we have a long time between point to point when we're traveling. So there's more time to talk. Um, there are no f- even phones at that time, you know, so that's what's influencing it. And I think you can create that world um, and the point of that language much better and more clearly if you let it uh, live in, in the world that it's designed to live in, you know. Um, so I, th- I, I, I sometimes wonder why we think we're going to do anybody any good by putting it in modern dress. Um, the other thing, too, is that I don't know if you've ever done any of this kind of work, but the source material that exists for Shakespeare's plays. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And so- I, well, I remember I remember I was working on I, – I got the chance to play Richard III, and Yo. I remember going back and reading Sir Thomas More's yep. account. And it was fascinating to see – you know, because you see what Shakespeare did. I mean, he literally lifted sections out of More's writing yeah. and, and dramatized it. But a lot of times the words – the word order was the same or the phrases, and you go, sure. this is what he used. This is amazing. Sure. And, yeah. You know, and, and then, of course, you read about the experience of, you know, the whole – Political campaign, to, the sure. smear campaign on Richard the Third, but yeah. um, but yes, uh, to, sorry to jump in, but yeah, it is it, it is no, right. interesting, and that was just one that was just one example. I know there's tons of source material out well, there. Well, I mean, when we did Julius Caesar, oh, yeah. we took the the actual Plutarch. stabbing from Plutarch, oh, Plutarch's lives, and wow. so what you got to yeah, see yeah, on yeah. stage was every one of those weapons that uh, pierced Caesar, exactly how it was reported in the you know in his chronicles. So. That becomes very exciting to an audience. Again, you, you're allowing them to become part of history. Um, right. You know, right. I always feel too, as if you can understand that something 400 years ago or 2000 years ago is impacting our lives today, then maybe we would just become a little bit more responsible about something that we do having an impact mm. on lives 400 years from now. But I think when you mm. cut out history, um, we have to start all over again. And this narcissism that, that comes into play doesn't help the future and it totally ignores the past. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, again, we, we could, we could continue this conversation, um, <laughs> a long time. And, and it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's been wonderful to, to chat with you about Shakespeare and, 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 you know, at length. And, you know, it just. I'd love to sit down with you, you know, know, and look at <laughs> I know. the script together. I know, I know. Yeah. That's the best way to show you at that, least how we look at it. That would be fun. Right, right. Of, of course, of course. Yeah, to, to, to see, you know, what you've picked up or what I've picked up. Yeah, I mean, but that's where it can all come together and you, you start to explore all the possibilities. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, just for our, our, to try to wrap up our time here. Okay. Um, you know, on the podcast, I, I, I just had a few more, you know, shorter questions, you know, but you're welcome to go on as long as you like. Um, but I was curious, uh, you know, Randy, with everything you've done and, and accomplished, you know, are, what are some of the roles that 
you're most proud of? Is there one that stands out that, you know, really stands out to you? I think that's hard, Nathan. It's yeah. like choosing between friends, sure. you know? <laughs> it's like which friend is better than... It, it's hard to say. I mean, all these characters that I've done are like uh, like part of my being now. You know, yeah. they're a part of me. They they sit on my shoulder. They're sitting in my heart. Sure. So it's it's really hard to say. And as an actor, I'm never satisfied. Uh, mm, okay. Because I've never, for every one of them, uh, I think that I could have done each of them better. Let's put it that way. You know, that, that was actually going to be my follow-up because, you know, just to keep ourselves honest here, you know, I, I was curious which ones had, had really challenged you or, or frustrated you or maybe even eluded you. <laughs> well, Hamlet did it at the beginning, I think, and then I got, yeah. got to know his sense of humor and his compassion and his, you know, his, uh, his conscience. I know which one. You? Romeo. Oh, oh, really? It's difficult. I was too <laughs> old to do that. Oh, too old. And I was smoking, smoking at the time, and so I was coughing oh, my geez. lungs out. No, my voice didn't sound like a young man's voice. <laughs> you were a mature Romeo. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Oh, bad. Not the, uh, not the young, impetuous, passionate <laughs> no. Italian. No, no. Oh, that's funny. So, um, well, what is it that, uh, you two still want to do, you know, after accomplishing so much and, you know, your, your careers or lives are nowhere, you know, they certainly don't have to be over anytime soon, but, but what is still out there for you? What do you, what do you still want to, um, make sure you get done? Well, this winter, Annie and I have consecrated the time of going into the ancient Greek world and the ancient Greek plays because hmm. we want to put together a script that we've called Greek fire, uh, with scenes and excerpts from the Greeks. And we're going to put together a script with that material. Oh, I think the cool. Greeks are the voice of our time. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we're at a point now where the, that, oh, it's so hard to hang our hat on anything. And the Greeks help, help you with that struggle. You know, you have Oedipus, who's sort of the heroic tyrant. So he is, within this man, you have this ability to save, um, uh, you know, his country from the wrath of the Sphinx, and yet he becomes the pollution of that country. But that idea of how we're torn apart today, you have Medea, who, you know, if you want to talk about misogyny and you want to talk about the idea of a, a man uh, using a woman for his gain and then giving the excuse that he has to do what he has to do because it's the best thing for her children. Or you have the Trojan women who show heroism uh, in the face of absolute destruction and despair. These, that's, I, uh, we believe that that's where our time is right now. We're desperate. There's a great feeling of despair in the world. Have we lost, uh, you know, our way completely? What is our, what is democracy? I mean, 
you need the Greeks to show you where it began. And so it's right for us to, and no one's doing the Greeks. I, I'm always, I always marvel that all these women who want to do King Lear and Richard II, but why aren't they doing Medea? That's our story. Why aren't mm-hmm. they doing the Trojan women? That's our story. I don't want to do a man's story. It doesn't matter if I put on uh, you know, trousers and get out there and say, well, I can do King Lear. I'm still telling the man's story. The woman's story is in the Greeks. Um, so we, we mm. want to take a really deep look at that and, and, uh, spend many, many, uh, much of our life years whole with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me, I, I, and I think it's been about 40 years since Williamstown did their, the Greeks, yeah. um, Cycle. The Greeks had to do with the Trojan War, right? Right. Well, yeah, yeah. it was this whole collection. Uh, it was John Barton and Kenneth Cavender. Yeah, this yeah. Adaptation yeah. Uh, of you know, I, I mean, there were multiple, multiple stories, but yeah, yeah it was this uh, six-part epic, epic kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but yeah, it, and as you said, like it's it's been a while since you know any major theater has done a real you know strong uh look at it again but yeah. um so we're due for it yeah. um mm-hmm. well good so that, i mean that's exciting that you guys have that uh coming up and, and at least you know putting the time towards it yeah yeah all right so i just had a few quick questions just to you know kind of wrap things up and what would you guys tell your 25 year old self <laughs> I would say to my 25-year-old self, don't be so self-centered. Mm. <laughs> I would say don't waste time. I would say uh, use every waking moment you can learning, uh, learning this craft. It's it's interesting to hear you say that, because I've, I've, you know, to hear your story, it doesn't, I, I don't know what time you might have wasted. You guys seemed so busy. So do you feel like you could have been doing even more? I do. Yeah, I do. Really? Wow. Um, I think I would have learned languages so that I could mm. take a look at plays and perhaps have a hand in translating them. I think I would have uh, yeah. s- spent more time refining my knowledge of music, and, uh, you know, world music, classical music, um, because I, and those are the, I spent my time with the plays and with acting them and directing them, but there's so much around that that I would have liked to have spent more time with. Hmm. Got it. Okay. And when you guys aren't working or, you know, if you have a, you know, a play that you're actively, you know, rehearsing or things like that, but, you know, you're not working officially how do you spend your day are there certain rituals or you know uh, parts of your day that you always try to honor or do or get to tell you tell them <laughs> oh, i'm not quite sure what it is you expect me to tell him. that you're gonna bake oh, well, yeah, well that's part and parcel of it i mean we do spend every evening having a meal together so i yeah. do a lot of cooking through the course of the yep. day um, that's part of it, but uh, Randy usually sits close by, and so as I'm cooking, Good we talking. have these conversations. Um, and at night, uh, if I come upon a passage and something that I'm reading, I read it aloud to him, and he does the same thing for me. Um, 
but I, I, but we, I mean, we watch movies. We, you know, we do a lot. We're retired now, and so we have a lot more time to to do to spend mm-hmm. our day the way we want. But we do have ten thousand sure. books, literally. <laughs> wow. um, and we sort of have a, a a kind of wish to, you know, start at one end and finish them before we just right. sort of like the last leaf, you know, that short story. Um, when the last book is read, then we'll, then we'll die. <laughs> so we have yeah, a really yeah, good yeah. shot with 10,000 of them. Um, I think uh, for me, uh, my last years have to do with, um, there are so many black holes in my understanding of things that I want to wrestle with it. You know, mm. places in my understanding that are just incomprehensible that I haven't made the linkage, whether it's historical understanding or scientific understanding. Uh, so all of that. And Annie and I recently have, because of the political situation that the country is in now, we've been reading up on how we got here pretty mm. much. Sure. Where we're at, and we've been discussing that. Whether or not the theater can be of service at this time of mm. of our troubles our national troubles yeah and and in terms of um uh working it, d- it does sound like you guys still work on shakespeare pretty regularly or yeah. you know talk about it yeah um, yeah we do and we have right. a, a group of students that contact us and they you know when they want to work occasionally we'll have one who gets cast and they'll come and spend a week or two weeks mm-hmm. with us and we'll take them through the role and you know that it's a lot of what we do is more on a one-on-one uh, basis. We don't do a lot of group teaching. We did teach three courses um, on <clears throat> Hamlet, King Lear, and Merchant of Venice, which were thirteen weeks each, and so we were able to wow. take students through the whole play from an uh, actor's point of view, theater point of view. Um, so we, we're always, we're always working. And I always remember Morris when he was in his nineties, they asked him, somebody asked him if, if he felt bad that he was 90 and he couldn't work on these plays any longer. And he said, nonsense. I'm still working on my Macbeth. I intend to do Macbeth. So you, you know, I, I think I, I, I understand what he means. You, yeah. you, that's why I said to you earlier, I would start a theater tomorrow. Right, um, right. Now, that's in my insane moment of <laughs> getting everything and, you know, um, but I, but I think that's what does help. We can't stop working. We love these plays. It's our, I don't know, it's our life. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. Well, in, in thinking about the, the 10,000 books and, and, uh, <laughs> You know, the, all of the texts that you've been surrounded with, uh, for your life. Are there any quotes that each of you think of often or, or try to live your life by? Oh, well. Uh, life. Well, there's that one keep within yourselves some mm-hmm. images of magnificence from Yeats. Mm-hmm. I, th- from- I think for me, the th- one quote that I carry with me is from Stanislavski when he was choosing his company and he said, there's the actor who sees himself in the art and the actor who sees the art in himself. Um, and he only wanted to work with the latter. Um, and I, uh, so I always carry that with me when my, 
my ego, you know, gets out of whack or if I think of of how wonderful my knowledge is of Shakespeare or all of this, I, I try to hold on to um, the art in me and not me in the art. Mm. Well, thank you both for bringing a lot of magnificence to this conversation and bringing a lot of art into our lives. And, and uh, this has just been a wonderful, wonderful chat. I really appreciate your time. It's been great. Oh, you're wonderful. We really appreciate that you contacted us and, and that you're so willing to listen <laughs> to us go on. <laughs> I thank you, Nathan. And what you're doing is really important, if only to preserve some actor stories about their journey. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you're, you're very welcome. And, and that has become uh, a big part of this and, and why it's, uh, why it's important for me to continue doing or to do. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, whether it's, you reach a point in your life where you start to think of the preservation of others or self-preservation, um, but you just start to become much more aware of, oh, wait a second, these people aren't going to be here forever. Yeah. And, uh, of course, now exists the uh, ability and, and tools to easily, uh, you know, capture some, some, uh, some time of these people on the planet. So, you know, that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to do right now. Good. Good. Hey guys, Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode, as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All the links are on our site and in the episode notes. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show starting at just $2 per month. Head over to workingactorsjourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan, and enjoy the journey. Thank you.